0: We are in the gospel according to Luke, going verse by verse through it. If you're new to Manoah, we've been going, uh, we looked at the angel Gabriel appear to Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? And declare that they were going to give birth in their old age, a miraculous birth to John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus. Well, six months later, the same angel appears to the Virgin Mary. This is last week's sermon and tells her that she's going to give birth to the Son of God. And Mary takes this good news and she travels nearly a hundred miles to go visit her relative Elizabeth. And so today we're going to see this exchange where these two women come together and it's electric, it's dynamic, and there's multiple generations on display in this text. We have older Elizabeth and young Mary here, but we also the babies get involved because we're gonna see John jump and leave for joy, for example. And then Mary goes into what's been famously been called the Magnificat, where she has the first Christian hymn. She sings out praises to God because of his deliverance, raising up the lowly and humbling the proud. And so we're going to see all of these generations on display. And in her prayer, in particular, her song of praise, she talks about how all generations will call her blessed. And the mercy of God is for every generation as displayed through this good news. And so I've entitled today's sermon, if you're taking notes, The Jesus Generation, because this is the first moment where we see Jesus enter into the scene in utero, right? And John the Baptist in utero starts to celebrate and praise. And from this point forward, the old covenant to the new, old generation to the next generation, we are now the Jesus generation. And all the praises that she sings out about the mercy of God for all generations, they apply to you and to me. And so we're going to look at the various generations, namely John the Baptist in utero and Elizabeth, an old woman, and Mary herself, also these three generations, and how the arrival and advent of Jesus creates a worshiping community, a celebratory community, a Jesus generation. So whether you are young or old or somewhere in between, you get to join this Jesus generation. And I'm going to be reading the first uh, verses, 39. All the way to verse 50, but then I will finish out the whole sermon. We're actually going to preach to verse 56 to get the whole Magnificat in there. So if you're taking notes, again, it's called the Jesus Generation. Please open your Bibles to verse 39, which will also be on the screen. We'll begin chapter 1, verse 39. Here we go. Well, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she encountered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud voice and a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why? Why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The Jesus generation. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we thank you for your great arrival. Jesus, we thank you that you entered into this world to seek and to save the lost. For those of us who are saved, we pray that our praises would resound like Mary and Elizabeth and John's joy, Lord. We would add our joy and our praises to theirs, Lord, and celebrate your mercy, the blessing that came through Mary into the entire world. And for those who are far from you, God, we pray that today would be the day of salvation, Lord. As we look around our nation, as we look around the world, Lord, we see an entire generation many times turning their backs On you, Jesus. God, we pray that we would be the generation to rise up and lift up the name of Jesus, that this generation and all generations might be blessed in Christ and bless your name. Make us this Jesus generation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have a funny meme to talk about generational differences to get us started in today's sermon, Jesus' Generation. It says, for every broke millennial... Excuse me, for every broke or unemployed millennial, there is a boomer earning six figures that can't open a PDF. <laughs> there are generational differences, and we like to poke fun at each other's. Here's a one, uh, funny one for generational jokes, a comparison. Boomers, when life hands you lemons, you make lemonade. Generation X... When life hands you lemons, create a business to market lemons juicy. Lemon juice is a healthy, low carb, low sugar variation to lemonade. Make millions. Millennials, which is Gen Y. LOL. As if anyone would just hand me some lemons. (laughs) If you're unfamiliar with the different titles, I have this little. I get confused sometimes with the generational differences, but we got the builders, which is the silent generation. They grew up during the times of the economic hardship, like the Great Depression, World War II. And this generation is often known for resiliency and frugality. And we got the boomers associated with valuing job stability. These are often people who kept the same job at the same company and they were loyal. They worked 9 to 5 and they still believe in that. Gen Xers are often seen as latchkey kids. And I'm right at the cusp of Gen X and Gen Y and I was a latchkey kid. I grew up with both parents working and they often lead with their independence and self-reliance. And then we got the millennials starting in 1980 often associated with being tech-savvy, having a strong desire for a work-life balance. And then Gen Z is characterized as the generation that grew up with smartphones, social media, leading to strong digital communication skills. One final joke, how does a Gen Z start a person, excuse me, how does a Gen Z person start a conversation? They text you a message from across the room. It's true. (laughs) It's true. They'll text you and they'll look up. So, And Gen Alpha, by all means, uh, the kids in the room, they are Gen Alpha. They know no world without a tablet. And by all means, they're often on those tablets every day of their lives. There are differences in our generations. We live in these different eras as people. And as I already alluded to in this text today, we have three generations on display we have Elizabeth, who is a much older woman, and her younger relative, Mary, here. They're separated by decades, possibly 50 years. And then we have infants joining into the praises, these various generations. And then I saw in Mary's praise and prayer this idea that all generations would call Mary blessed, that even despite our differences, all of the generations would find a unity around what's happening in Mary's life, and all generations from generation to generation would experience the mercy of God because of this great event as we fear the Lord. And so it got me thinking about, we often preach this during Christmas, what's a non-Christmas way to look at this text? We're looking at it through the lens of generations celebrating and being unified through the event of Jesus Christ's arrival and the mercy that comes. And I want to look at it through the eyes of Elizabeth And Mary, and also through John the Baptist, who does preach in this text, by the way, even though he's in utero. These three generations that rise up and bless the Lord. So if you're taking notes, here are your three points looking at these three characters. Jesus brings every generation, first, explosive joy. He unifies and brings every generation explosive joy. That'll be represented by John the Baptist. Secondly, loud humility represented by Elizabeth's response. And thirdly and finally, magnificent praise, representing the song sung by Mary. So let's begin with this first point. Jesus brings every generation first, explosive joy. Now put up on the screen verse 41 and 44 just to show these joy passages put together here. So Elizabeth is waiting and Mary arrives in utero. Ba- baby Jesus is only a few weeks old. She's traveled nearly 100 miles. And it says, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And then verse 44, the baby in her womb, my womb, she says, leaped for joy. Now, this is amazing. John the Baptist, who is preparing the way for the Lord, right? We're told earlier, the angel Gabriel tells Mary, your relative Elizabeth is already six months pregnant. They live far apart. This is not the era of cell phones. You can't pick up the phone. She cannot text. She can't do FaceTime. She has got to ha- go and travel to figure this out for herself. And she, she travels this long journey as a newly Mom, right, impregnated with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and comes into the room to greet her relative Elizabeth. And when she greets her, this six-month, maybe seven-month at this point, child leaps for joy in her womb, and Elizabeth extols and says, this baby just went haywire the moment you walked in. Now, of course, Elizabeth is familiar with her baby moving around. She's six, seven months pregnant. She noticed at this moment that something totally different just happened. And then divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, she interprets this event for all of us. That John the Baptist, the one to prepare the way for Jesus, is already preaching and his pulpit is the womb. He's the first one to jump and leap for joy, recognizing that Jesus has just entered into the building. And when Jesus enters the room, John in utero gets super excited. He's one filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb, we're told, by the angels. So he already has the Holy Spirit, and his witness has already begun. And this is a convergence, brothers and sisters, of the Old and the New Covenants touching. Because John the Baptist is the great final prophet of the Old Covenant. And Jesus is the one ushering in the New covenant. The new way, where we move away from the center, which is in Jerusalem, around a blood sacrifice of animals and goats and all those things, because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those. He is the new temple. He is the new tabernacle. He is the final sacrifice. He has arrived not only to save Israel, which he's come to do, but save the whole world. And as the old covenant and the new covenant touch, it's almost like two wires and sparks fly. There's an explosion where John leaps for joy, overwhelmed as these converge, as we see a passing from the old into the new. When Jesus arrives, all of the hope of Israel is now fulfilled in that child in Mary's womb. And John is the first to shout to the whole world, sing and leap for joy, the Savior has come. Jesus brings not only forgiveness in your life, did you know this? He's also come to bring the joy of God. And that's what John shows us in utero. Is that forgiveness and a relationship with God. They come into the world when Jesus enters the room. When Jesus enters your life. Revelation, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open the door, I would come into him. When Jesus comes in, he brings the joy of the Lord into your life. Amen? It's not just cognitive, I believe these things. I've experienced the power of Christ as I've touched him, as I've seen him, as he's come into my life through the Holy Spirit and I come alive and like John, he brings and I leap for joy remember as a young teenager, many of you have heard my story where I came to Christ and I was in a rock band with my brother who was leading worship at the time. He was not leading worship back then. We were singing in godless garbage, all right? It was trash. We were singing dark stuff and I repented and took my CDs out of my backpack and put my Bible into my backpack and started to share my faith. Shortly after that moment of repentance, I remember one night, and I've shared this as well, but if you haven't heard it, I was praying in my bedroom. And prayer doesn't come easy to me, even as a pastor sometimes. I have to fight for prayer. But something about this evening was totally different, where I could not leave prayer. Like, the Holy Spirit had just captivated me. And I was so full with the power and the presence of God that I was shaking, overwhelmed with the joy of the Lord. And I remember crying and saying, God, I never... experienced anything like this. I know that the Bible talks about these kind of fillings of the Holy Spirit and experiencing and taste and see that the Lord is good, but I didn't think it was real, like really real. And these waves of love just overwhelms me. And I'm not saying you need to run on experience and that every morning you wake up in your quiet time, you're just going to wash over with the joy (laughs) of the Lord. But do you have those moments in your life where God's joy is so real You're not just saying, well, there's a difference between happiness and joy. I don't really think there is, by the way, biblically speaking. We can talk about that later. Joy is happiness, and happiness is joy. You will feel joy. It is a choice, but it's also an experienced reality. And we see this explosive joy when Jesus enters the scene, when he enters your room. And this is not a generational thing like, I'm a stoic generation. Young people are more animate. No every generation will rise up and bless the name of the Lord. This joy is available for you. What I want you to hear under this first point is if you're a Christian and it's all up here, seek him here. Move it down to your heart that your heart would erupt and explode with joy. And if you're not a Christian and you're looking for joy, I believe we all are looking for happiness, right? You will never find true and ultimate happiness or joy until you place it in the Lord. We're doing the Bible reading plan. We're in Ecclesiastes right now, right? And the author of Ecclesiastes had great wealth and access to everything he'd want, and he realized it's all futile. And we chase after these things, and sometimes the more money you get, the more you realize that you could just buy more things, and you keep going after it, thinking it'll make you happy. It's just a rat race. All of the things you're looking for joy in are found in Jesus Christ. Stop turning the things that Jesus made into idolatry and idols and worshiping them. Worship him, and by the way, when you do, you'll get the joy in the end anyway because you were created to delight in him. Westminster Confession of Faith, the shorter catechism, the first question, what is the chief end of man? Why did God make you? To glorify God. To enjoy him forever. You were created to bring God glory and in so doing find your joy and delight in him. The witness of this child preaches that. John the Baptist said, when Jesus was being elevated and everyone was going to him, my joy is complete. He likened himself to a, yeah, you can put it up there, but I'm just going to summarize it. He likened himself to the best man at a wedding, watching his friend get married. It's not about the best man. It's not about you. It's about the groom and the bride. And when we go and celebrate that, we get joy watching Jesus exalted. That's the first thing we see from this passage. And would you, my friends, seek your joy in Christ and glorify God through enjoying Him. Secondly, Jesus brings every generation not only explosive joy as represented by John the Baptist leaping for joy and preaching the joy of the Lord. Secondly, Jesus brings every generation loud humility, loud humility. Now, we wouldn't always think of these words juxtaposed side by side together, but I'm going to show you this from Elizabeth's life and how it finds its way into every Christian heart as well. But again, verse 42, there we go. Elizabeth noticed that she was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Next slide. And why, why, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her From the Lord. Jesus, the Jesus generation brings about loud humility. She cries out with a loud cry, Why me? Right? Blessed are you. Now, to get into the context, think about this. She has waited her whole life to be pregnant. Her whole life. She's in her later years. She shouldn't even be able to give birth to a baby at all. This is a miracle. And all of a sudden, this little teenager walks in that did nothing, right? Not really, but I mean she's and she's pregnant. Now it can be tempting. It can be tempting if you can't have a baby, right? To celebrate with other people. Now she is pregnant. But here's the powerful thing we see about her witness in this moment as Mary carrying Jesus enters into her house. The spotlight moves from Elizabeth onto Mary and onto her tummy, and it stays there. And this miracle that's been wrought in her life is now fully redirected to the miracle in Mary's life. In fact, she is the one redirecting the celebration and the praise away from herself. She says, blessed are you. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. What about the baby in your womb? She's not worried about John at this moment. She is captivated by what God is doing in Mary's life for her through her son, Jesus. And that's why I say loud humility, because there's this combination of celebration where she is so lathered up and so excited about God and what he's doing in the world. And even though God's doing amazing things in her, she is more focused on Mary and Jesus than herself. She takes the spotlight and she shines them on Jesus Christ. This, by the way, is the first confession of any believer in our New Testament of Jesus as Lord. Did you see that? The mother of my Lord. She's calling Jesus the Son of God. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's revealed that to her because Mary's barely had a chance to get the words out of her lips, right? They're just starting to talk, and she already knows God has entered the building through you. What are you doing here? I'm not even worthy of this. And miraculous things are happening. And she's like, why is it granted to me that you would honor me with this child in my presence? And I don't believe that's feigned humility. That is the impact of Jesus entering into Elizabeth's life. Why me? What about me is so special that you would honor me with your presence, Jesus? And this is where I wanna move from the text to your life and mine as well. I went to Drexel University before I went to seminary and I got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ and I was a young babe in Christ. And all I knew about the gospel at this point is if you believe in Jesus, you're saved, you repent, you believe, turn to Jesus. It was a kind of transactional understanding of Christianity, which is true, right? You repent and believe and God saves you. But in my mind, I was just like, you know, God helps those who help themselves a little bit. Not really, not to be crass, but I, I did the deal. I did the transaction. And there was a woman at my campus. Her name was Han Nyo. I'm butchering her last name, N-G-O, Han. And she started to disciple me and some of my other friends and Katie Bomberger, by the way. She was box dance back then. She's part of our church and others of you were part of that. And I remember one day as we were worshiping the Lord together, she was just in tears And she got up and she started to pray. And she prayed this, she said, God, why me? Why would you save me? Out of all the people in the world, why would you choose me? Why would you have mercy on me? Because of my many sins against you, God, why me? And there was something about her understanding of grace that provoked me, where I said, wait a second. What does she understand about grace that's different than my understanding about grace? And I discovered this as I read my Bible and went deeper. I didn't make the first move. God made the first move towards me. And the reason that I believed is because he came to me when I wasn't looking for him. Amen. And you question, look at my own story, and our stories are different the reason we played at that church where the woman shared the gospel with my brother is because I wanted to get our name, Molly Coddle, on the radio. I was at the right place at the right time for a sinful, evil, wicked purpose to exalt me and push Jesus out of the church. And he still came and he still had mercy on me. And he still saved me despite my running from him and despite my using and exploiting Christianity in the church to lift myself up, he saved me. And each one of us in our stories, do you see that God came to you? Maybe you're here today saying, but I brought myself to church. Why are you here? Who told you to come today? Who brought you? What convicted you to wake up early and change your heart and change your mind? God is on the move. And until you see that he is the first mover in your life, and the first one that initiates in your salvation, there's still a little bit of room to boast. Yeah, I I just realized there's a lot of messed up stuff in the world, and I needed God. No. In your messed up state, he comes to you. And like Elizabeth, we see this heart, the heart of a true believer is loud humility. And we tend to think of humility as quiet, like, I don't want to talk about Jesus because I don't want to offend her. Like, <laughs> She's not quiet in her redirecting of praise, right? Because usually this is how it works in the fallen sinful state. We're either quietly humble or like, don't want to talk about myself, or we're loudly proud, like, look at me, look at me, everybody. And people, we can spot them, even when they're trying to be, pretend they're being humble, but they're just, I'm so humble, that blah, 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 you know. Elizabeth's praise is different because she's loud in her redirection of praise. You see that? And I think that's provocative for us as Christians, that do people know us as loudly, humble people, where we're not quiet about our love for Jesus, but when they bump into us, they hear that our praise is about him and not directing praise to ourselves, amen? Two of you believe that, amen? Yes. (laughs) We should be loud every generation, Gen X, Gen Y, boomer, loud in our adoration of Jesus, loud to say, why me? But thank God for his mercy, and if why me, why not you? And we bring his word, amen, we bring his word to those who are far off, because you become then an agent of God living inside of you to bring them to Christ. Jesus brings every generation, not only explosive joy, it starts, the joy of the Lord is within, overflows, and then we have a loud humility like Elizabeth where we say, why me? A great quote by Spurgeon, and then we'll move on to our next point and final point. He says, I know nothing, nothing again that is more humbling for us than this doctrine of election. Election refers to God choosing to save us, making the first move. I've sometimes fallen prostrate before it when endeavoring to understand it. I have stretched my wings and like eagle-like, have soared toward the sun. Steady has been my eye and true my wing for a season. But when I came near it and the thought possessed me, God hath from the beginning chosen you unto salvation before you were born. Right? I was lost in its luster. I was staggered with the mighty thought and from the dizzy elevation came Elevation down came my soul, prostrate and broken, saying, Lord, I am nothing. I am less than nothing. Why me? Why me? We should be the most humble people on the planet. There should not be anything arrogant or proud in the church when we understand that God has saved us in our sinfulness. And we should be zealous to see this great grace travel through us to those who still need him. Amen loud humility, thirdly, magnificent praise. Jesus brings every generation explosive joy, loud humility, magnificent praise. This is represented by the Magnificat of Mary. It's lengthy, but I want to give her the chance to read the whole thing again, the front and the ending, and just pull out a few themes because we could do a whole sermon series on the Magnificat, but we got to keep moving. Here we go. Mary said after she extols her, said, blessed is she... Who has believed what has been spoken to her from the Lord? She says, "My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on His humble on the humble estate of His servants. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation." He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Jesus brings every generation magnificent praise. I said earlier, this is the first Christian hymn, if you will. It's sort of the end of the Old Testament Psalms and the beginning of the hymns of praise. And there's more to come, by the way. Zechariah and others will sing songs of praise to God for Jesus and John the Baptist. And in this hymn, her soul erupts in praise, her spirit rejoices. I want you to see that at the outset, that this is something not just cognitive again. Her inner being is getting involved in worship. And when we think about the encounter of Christ in our life and Him entering into our life, the impact of that for the true believer is a spirit-led, a soul worship where we worship God in our inner being. She says, my soul, my spirit rejoices. There's an overflowing of our heart that that joy that hits us here can't stay here. It comes up and it bubbles out and over. And that's what we call worship. And she worships, she magnifies the Lord. Now, when we think about the Magnificat, that's what this has been historically called from the Latin. So the Magnificat, she's magnifying the Lord. Magnification could do two things. We got microscopes, right, that take small things and make them look big. Or we have lenses like telescopes that take big things and bring them before our view. And when she is magnifying the Lord, and when any Christian magnifies the Lord, we are not doing the microscope approach to our faith, all right? God is not a small thing that we just got to focus, got to, is that him? No, that's an eyelash. Right? No. He is enormous. Think how huge the sun is. And it's one of the smaller of the stars. And there are billions of suns, right? And he made them all. When we magnify the Lord, we scope up. And he is so great and so grand. And yet we are so distracted. And all of a sudden, we telescope in. And the greatness hits us and overflows in our spirits and our souls. And we magnify the Lord with all that is within us. And so when Jesus enters our life, there is joy. There is joy. There's humility, and there is praise that comes out of the true believer. And in her praise, it is dense. It's really a summary of your whole Bible, if you will. Some skeptics are like, how does this teenager know so much Bible that she's quoting? First, we believe in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit's inspiring her. And two, she is godly. She knows that the Jewish people, they don't have a lot of written text, but there's an oral tradition passed down over and over, the Psalms and the stories. And they are so in her soul that as she worships, she pulls them together and speaks God's truth back to him. Because these are not quoting specific Bible verses, but these are key themes throughout our whole Bible that Mary, when you prick Mary, she bleeds Scripture. I think it was Spurgeon that says, I want to, when you prick me, I want to bleed biblene, I think is how he worded it. And I love that earlier when we're praying, you hear the Bible just overflowing. We're not quoting verse in chat. It's just it's the vocabulary, the categories of Scripture now inform how we think. They inform how we pray. They inform how we worship spontaneously. They inform how we view the whole world. And in Mary's mind, there are two things that she is focused on there from generation to generation. That God exalts the humble, and he lays low the proud. Do you see it? Look again at her script, her, uh, her song. She magnifies him because she's in a humble estate. She's just this young teenage virgin. He's looked upon me. He's done great, mighty things for me. His mercy is on those who fear him. And then verse 51, she transitions. He's shown strength with his arms, scattered the proud, brought down the mighty. Notice 53, filled the hungry with good things, the rich he sent away empty. She's extolling God for his great power in reversals, exemplified by what's happening in her life. Because remember from last week, we said, Mary is a nobody, a teenage nobody from the wrong zip code. And God has now invaded her life and her story in a subversive way that one day this Jesus will be king over all creation. And then there are others like Herod who are all proud in their castles. And that Herodian dynasty during the Roman era is going to come toppling down through King Jesus, right? The gospel is going to find its way into the Roman Empire and seed its way through the whole thing. And Jesus Christ is Lord over Caesar. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And these themes become the themes of the entire gospel of Luke. Think of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Where God brings down the rich man and exalts the poor man, Lazarus. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector is humble and goes home right with God. All of these themes find their way throughout the rest of the gospel that we're going to look at. And here's the key I want you to remember as we work through this series. As God humbles the proud... And he exalts the humble. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And she is a living example of that. Because she is the last and the least. And God has come to her. And if God has come to her, a nobody, he can come to you and me. And one of the only things that will block him in your life, listen, is not sin. (laughs) Jesus came to save sinners. It's pride. Because proud people don't think they need forgiveness. Proud people want power, not mercy. Proud people hoard it and lord it over others. They don't get down on their feet. When we get down in repentance, God lifts us from the, the ash heap and seats us high up with the princes. But when we fight for the seed of honor, we get kicked down to the pit of hell. That's how this works. If you want mercy, just acknowledge that you're a nobody. Just bring your sin and say, all I have to bring to God is my sin, which is many. But we sang it earlier, praise the Lord. Though my sins be many, his mercy is more. His mercy will always overcome your sin. You just have to humble yourself. Like Mary and acknowledge, he's God my Savior and I need a Savior. If Mary needs a Savior, by the way, you most certainly do as well. If Elizabeth needs a Savior who is described as righteous earlier in the text, certainly you do as well. And if you think that you're just fine, good enough person on the day of judgment, I'll be all right, careful. That kind of pride will get you knocked down. But if you, like the rest of us in the body of Christ, say, I'm a nobody, I don't deserve it, why me? Mercy spotlights on you, and God lifts you up says i'll rescue that one we see in her song magnificent praise for the mercy of god i want to invite the worship band back up to the stage as we bring this to a close the last exegetical point i want to draw out of this text meaning the sorry for using that word the last point (laughs) i want to bring out of this text is that she goes from the personal to the global She starts with me. My soul magnifies the Lord. By the end, she's going cosmic in scope. She's going generation to generation, all of Israel, all of his offspring forever and ever and ever. And I believe in the next generation, I'm speaking to young people right now and the elders, and a lot of the tensions politically that we're feeling right now is underneath a lot of sin, yes. Yes. But there is a desire to see the wrong things made right and the right things, like, corrected, right? And that's what Mary is actually saying is God will do that. God will do that, right? God is the one that lifts people up and brings them down. But you can't leapfrog past the personal is what I want to say to you, my friends. You can't just jump into the world and think somehow you're going to fix the world because you're broken. And so am I. But when it starts with the personal, and God transforms you, and transforms us, and transforms us, now we are transformed people to be an agent of true godly kingdom, not American, not belief, kingdom-minded transformation in the world. Because if we wanna see God change the world, it's gotta start with the man and the woman in the mirror. It starts personal. It starts with humility. It starts with humbling ourselves. It starts by opening up us, ourselves, to Jesus. Because in the end, you are not the hope of the world. Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z millennials are not the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. And Jesus is the hope of not only the boomer generation, and Gen X and Gen Y and Gen Z and the millennials, Jesus is the hope of every generation. From generation to generation, his mercy is on you. If you fear the Lord, do you fear him. That's where this begins. And that's what unites every generation. We need not fight the other generations. We need one another. And Jesus will be the glue. It hits us unifies us so that we can be a new people for the glory of God. Amen?